Lord, there is just always so much to learn about you and the depths of your knowledge and understanding and your revealed will to us is unfathomable. It's impossible to get to the bottom of, but uh, today we desire to come before you and to hear from your word that we may learn from you, that we may be encouraged by what we hear, and that we may be more obedient to you. And specifically today, we just pray a double portion would be poured out on us, that we would be stirred by this message, that we would be stirred by what you have told your prophet Hosea and how it is so applicable to us today, how it is one of the most encouraging, if not the most encouraging thing about you that we could hear from you. So please open up our hearts to receive your implanted word and let it grow deep within us and let it motivate us during this time and in this place. We thank you for all these things in your name. Amen. So I think you guys know by now, I normally like to start these sermons by telling you a story or a place in history. And today I want to do that as well. I want to start by telling you the story of a real man named Eric Lomax. Eric Lomax was born in Scotland. And when he was 19 years old, he joined the Royal Corps of the Signals in 1939. It was a uh, satellite transmission company at the beginning of World War II. Now, the Allied forces in the West were fighting the Nazis and Hitler, but there are also forces in the East that were specifically fighting the Japanese, and that's where Eric Lomax was deployed. And three years after he was deployed, unfortunately, he was one of thousands of British soldiers who ended up surrendering to the Japanese in Singapore. And that was the year 14, uh, 1942. Now, many of these were relocated to Thailand, and they were forced to work on the Burma Railway. It was a railway that covered a massive, massive section of Asia. And because of the brutality of how many people that they needed, including Eric Lomax, to create it, it was called the Death Railway. Now, for Eric Lomax, the worst part of this period wasn't actually the terrible conditions that he worked under, but specifically the way he was treated Mr. Lomax was repeatedly beaten and interrogated after his captors found a radio receiver that he had made from spare parts. During these interrogations, he was tortured. Multiple bones in his body were broken and water was poured into his nose and into his mouth. And this ended up happening a number of times while he was on the railway. And during this period, there was one man in particular who was always present and actually oversaw these interrogations that were going on. And that man was a Japanese interpreter named Nagasi Takashi. Now, amazingly, after a number of years being there, the Allied troops won the war. And as a result, they deployed troops to Japan. And after they won the Western Front, they went to Thailand and they found this prison camp. And they ended up freeing all of the prisoners that were there, including Eric Lomax. And once he was free, he decided to relocate to England and try to start a new life. But that ended up becoming very difficult after his imprisonment because of its lasting traumatic effect on his life. He had painful nightmares and would sleepwalk through his home, sometimes very dangerously. His first marriage ended up ending being affected by the baggage that he had brought into it because of his period of torture. His past ended up affecting him finding a job, finding another wife, 
finding friends, finding sleep, and most importantly, finding peace. And every time he thought about the future and how his comfort and stability would be completely ruined, he always saw the face of Nagasi Takashi. Lomax, in 2012, after he had passed away, was quoted by a New York Times article in which he told them at the time of the war, I would have been happy to murder that man. He went on to say that he was described as having fantasies about meeting Mr. Nagasi one day and how he had met, spent much time of the 1980s looking for information about him. One day he actually learned that after the war, Mr. Nagasi was not only still alive, but he had become an interpreter for the other side. And he helped them locate thousands of graves and mass burial sites along the Burma Railway. Supposedly, he had felt mournful and had felt terrible after all of the things that he had done to the allied groups. And so because of that, Mr. Lomax figured out where he was and he went to meet him. Now we would have expected, as the world would have expected, that Mr. Lomax may have tried to kill him at that meeting. But the article continues to read that when the men finally met in 1993, the reason they had met was because Lomax had read an article that stated Mr. Nagasi himself was also devastated by guilt over his treatment of one particular British soldier. And when he read the article, Lomax realized that that British soldier was him. So because of that, when they eventually met, it was Nagasi who was actually the one who was incredibly emotional. And as he approached him shaking with visible emotion, the only thing he could keep saying was, I am so sorry. I am so very, very sorry. And as a result of that meeting, Eric Lomax ended up forgiving Nagasi. But not only that, but they spent a long amount of time at that meeting talking about their lives during the war and after the war and how it had affected them in similar ways. And once they set up more meetings, they ended up going into a long-term friendship with each other. And they remained close friends from that point on until he died in 2012. Now, I first heard about that story when I watched a movie that came out at the same year that Lomax died in 2012. And I can tell you that one of my favorite scenes in a movie ever is at the end when they meet for the first time and Lomax hands Nagasi an envelope with a letter that Nagasi begins to read. And as he reads it, it is Lomax forgiving him. And it's very emotional to watch as Nagasi begins to cry and fall into his arms as Lomax holds him and forgives him. It's very emotionally stirring as it should be. And to be honest, there's many, many stories about humans with other humans either loving each other or in this case, forgiving each other, showing mercy to each other that are very emotional and they hit you in the heart and they affect you deeply and sometimes even change your life. But the question that I want us to ask as we approach Hosea is, have you ever felt that way when you hear about the grace of God towards sinners? Have you ever felt emotionally stirred or affected by the beauty that God describes when he says he wants a relationship with humanity? Now we're going to understand that in the book of Hosea, but first let me tell you just a bit of Hosea. This is the last book dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom at this point is at the brink of death. 
The Assyrian army that we learned about from the last two books that we studied in the Minor Prophets series have now about to come in and take over. And though Hosea is the third of a number of prophets to warn them about this, uh, this Assyrian nation coming in, they're still unrepentant, dwelling in horrible sin in which the innocent people suffered, the leaders in that nation worshipped foreign gods, and everybody chases after what they would desire to do, which is sinning, rather than obey the covenant that they agreed to keep with God. And the worst part of it is that God explains this breaking of the covenant, not just as disobedience, but as adultery, as betrayal, as an emotional breaking of marriage vows. That God wasn't just joined with his people, but he was married to his people. There was a close relationship, a close bond. As such, if you've read through this book, you'll notice that there's a word that comes up. And just for the sake of integrity, I'll just tell you it starts with a WH and ends with an OR. And it's shocking to hear it repeated so many times in this book. But the point is that it seems like a God is not just angry over their disobedience, but to use a figure of speech here, they've broken God's heart. There's an emotional response that God has had to his covenant people breaking this relationship. And as such, we would think that his judgment would fall on these people, not just of anger that his holy name has been profaned, not just anger because they've sinned, but because he's having a painful emotional response to people he loves disobeying and rejecting him. But instead, in Hosea chapter 11, like we're going to see, God explains and describes his plans for them because of his heart for them. He describes his plans for them because of his heart for them. And the heart that he wishes to describe to them, to illustrate to them, is that of a father. If there's anything you take away from Hosea today, it's God describing himself as father. And so as such, I think we have the simplest thesis statement or proposition that we've had in the Minor Prophet series so far, which is this. In Hosea 11, we will see three amazing displays of God's love as a father so that our hearts would be moved to worship him. We see three amazing displays of God's love as a father so that our hearts would be moved to worship him. And so we're going to see that in three very simple words, which I'll explain as we go, but the first one is the father's care. The father's care for his children. This is going to be the first four verses in chapter 11, verses 1 to verse 4. Now, when the world looks at a relationship with God, they might see it as God demanding attention, God wanting objects to worship him, and God needing to feel important, but the very first verse of Hosea destroys that claim. I don't know if you guys uh, get to see your grandparents very often, but when I do, my grandfather will always start with an old finger wagging at me and he'll say, I remember back in my day, or he'll start it by saying, I remember when I was your age. And he'll go on on a story. And, you know, the point isn't to scold me or try to say something weird to me, but he has a blissful and, and good and tender remembrance of the past. He enjoys telling me stories from the past as maybe your grandparents like to tell you good stories from the past because 
there's so many relationships he remembers that he loves and so many periods that he is fond of. And God does something interesting in the same way. In verse 1, he remembers the inciting incident, the first incident by which the Israelites were called his children. And that moment was the exodus. How he called from the burning bush to his servant Moses and sent him to Pharaoh's court. And when Moses came into Pharaoh's court, he told him that God has come and told me that we need to reclaim his firstborn son. And God demonstrated how he would do that through the plagues that he sent against Egypt. And then eventually through bringing them from that place and allowing them to pass through the Red Sea. Now he doubles down on that analogy in verse 3 by saying he taught them how to walk. Ephraim is the largest tribe in Israel. And so he's saying he taught Israel how to walk. And if you read verse 3, you can just picture the idea of a father with a newborn child. There's enough children in our congregation at Cornerstone that you can probably picture one in which a father or mother comes by a child and picks them up by their arms, lifting them over their head, and with their own strength of holding them upright and then leaning forward, the baby starts to experiment with what its feet do, and it starts moving them and begins to walk for the first time. God evokes the exact same image when he thinks of his people and being guided like this through the wilderness, and he doubles down on that description by saying he led them with the cords of kindness. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking of those times when I was at Grace Community Church, the church I was at before here with Ashley. And I remember sometimes on Sunday mornings, I had to work at the bookstore. And around the same time in the service, when I was working at the bookstore, the same thing inevitably happened halfway through service. And I can only describe it as a staff member in the children's uh, department, the children's ministry, uh, bringing a leash of babies. It's the only way I can describe it. A leash of babies. Basically what it was, was a big rope that went through 12 or 13 little children and a rope was tied around each of their waists and they had a grip that they would hold on to. And they would kind of drag all of these kids all around the community and all sorts of parents would say hi to them. I would wave through the bookstore doors and they're kind of doing this and stuff and like walking by and it's a really cute display, especially knowing that the kids were enjoying it. They understood their safety, their protection, and they were getting introduced to this great wide group of believers, thousands of people who understand their role over all of the children's lives there, which is to protect them and teach them about the word of God. And when you think of that image, you are probably not thinking that makes sense in the wilderness period. That image doesn't make sense in the context of being in a dry, hot, desert, parched of thirst. But God evokes something similar because he's telling them how tender he was even when they were in the wilderness. That he provided them food. He provided them water. He provided a cloud that went over them and protected them from the worst of the effects of the desert. But more than anything else, when they reached Mount Sinai, he created with them a covenant an explanation of a learning and discipleship relation with them in which they would serve him as the only God and he would pour out his grace and blessing and affection on them as his children. And this is something God desired to do, not the people. And so God doubles down on that idea of leading them in this by saying in verse four that he relieved them. It says he eased their yoke. 
And the idea of that is when a farmer was on their land and had an animal, usually an ox or a cow, leading and plowing a field, they would have a yoke on them, something that brought two animals together so that they would be led in a certain direction and they'd have what's called a bit, a piece of something that would go in the mouth connected to a rope that they could jerk and tug and direct them in a certain, in a certain way. And that was how a farmer used animals to plow a field. And God is saying, even though he led them, even though he put a yoke on them, even though he was leading them, he didn't put a bit in their mouth that hurt. He made it comfortable for them. He led them in a way that was very loving. And it seems weird that he would talk about being a father to his children, but then calling those children animals. And he's like a farmer plowing them. But keep in mind that we're talking here about the God of the whole universe. The God of the whole universe who's relating with created beings. Created beings who owe him everything and he owes them nothing. And that's kind of the point. The point is that God is demonstrating a kind of loving and tender relationship that no human being is entitled to. None of them deserve it. None of them could earn it, but he wanted to give it to them anyway. And it looks particularly beautiful and moving when you see it in comparison to the way his children saw that relationship, which is that they totally rejected it. They totally rejected it. Look back again at these verses, and now look at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, and they kept burning offerings to idols. These people treated God like he didn't exist. And every good thing he had ever done to them, they attributed to other gods who didn't exist and therefore could never love them. But those gods they created allowed them to sin in the ways they wanted to. And so they let it go. Verse 3 again says a similar idea by saying they didn't know that God healed them. The point is that in Exodus 15, 26, after going through the Red Sea, God tells the people he is their healer. It's a beautiful picture of a child bruising their knee by doing something children do, something that's not a good idea. And in following that incident, they run into the house and their parents bandage them up and fix the bruise. But then what they do with that is they go out and not only do they bruise themselves again, but it's even worse. And instead of running back to their house, they run into someone else's house, someone they don't know, someone they can't trust, someone who does not have their best interests at heart, and they want that person to bandage them. That's the point that he's getting at. It makes absolutely no sense other than they want to sin more. And that kind of picture is supposed to evoke something with us because the point is it's not good enough to just understand that God loves you. You have to understand how undeserving you are of God's love, how undeserving I am of God's love. And the idea of his calling out of a people, calling out of anyone in all of undeserving humanity to such love is supposed to be something that affects you emotionally. Not an emotion in sense that you just want to whip up some kind of excitement, but something in which 
all of reality, a God-controlled reality, a God-created reality points towards his glory and his worship. And instead of demanding your submissive service in terms of every single breath that you breathe being owed to God, he still describes himself as a father. And that is so painful to understand when you see how much his children reject him. Notice the way that the first four verses are organized. It goes between descriptions of a fatherly love and then his children sinning, then his father loving them nonetheless, then his children sinning even more, then back to an even greater demonstration of the father's love for them, and then even worse, deplorable, horrible sin. And when we see that kind of interplay, how God is good and man is sinful, we need to ask ourselves, do we think of God that way? Is our relationship with God one of, I look at my sin and I understand my desire to please myself, but then I look at the Father and I'm overwhelmed at how good he is to me regardless. I see my sin and I hate it. And then I see a Father who loves me and I'm overwhelmed. That's the picture that Hosea is trying to bring the people. And it's a picture that's supposed to affect every single one of us and affect our lives now. Because that's the question, right? Okay, God is describing me as a father. What do I do with that? Now, we have other texts here to get to, but I can name at least three reasons very quickly why it's important to understand God as your father. Number one is it should make you love your God. It should make you love God. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You need to ask yourself the question, God loves you. Do you love God? Do I have any kind of relationship with God in which I see him as a loving father? Is it something that I come back to that is encouraging for me, that is the greatest and most thankful relationship I have in my life? We need to ask ourselves that question. The second thing is you need to ask, if God is your father, then you need to ask yourself, am I obedient as one of his children? Am I obedient as one of his children? You probably know the commandment from the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father. And I would hope that you guys don't just honor your mother and father just because you don't want to get in trouble, but you also do it because they've been good to you and they love you. And if they have been good for us, how much more has the God of the universe been so gracious to us? And you have to ask yourself the question, am I motivated to obey God because I love God? Or am I motivated to obey God just because he gets me out of hell or he does good things for me? Why do you obey God? And the third reason is that it should encourage you to pray to God. Remember in Luke 11, chapter 2, when Christ tells his people how to pray, he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, hallowed be your name. And that gives you two things right there. One is the point we just looked at, the honor and reverence, the full adoration, the full worship that God is owed from every part of your being. But the other, because you're praying to a father, you should know that the father wants to hear from you. If he loves you, he wants to hear from you. He enjoys hearing about your day. 
knowing what's going on with you, hearing the ways that he can relieve the burdens and anxieties of your life. That is part of the relationship of being with God. And it's why your prayer life is supposed to start with God being Father. That's at least three reasons right there that knowing God as Father is important and why it should motivate you and stir your heart back towards him. So that's the care of the Father, the Father's care for you. So let's look at the second part, what the middle, what the bulk of the text, what most of the text that we're dealing with gets to, which is the Father's grace towards his children. The key word is grace, the Father's grace towards his children. It becomes shocking in verses 5, 6, and 7, going from such an amazing picture of God's grace and his beauty and his care for his children to punishment. We know that a father punishes. It's, it's part of the duty of being a parent, but it's incredibly scary getting into these three verses because of the dramatic shift that takes place. And we know it from the minor prophets, but we still need to look at it briefly to understand Hosea bringing us back into context. What are the Israelites doing right now? In verse 5, what's going on right now is that the people don't want God. They want Assyria. They see an evil nation that is successful, that they're dominating everybody else, and they want that. So God comes to them and says, fine, if you want the Assyrians, I'll let the Assyrians do what Assyrians do. And you know what Assyrians do? They kill and they capture people. So if you want them, they'll be your king. They're going to come and they're going to take you into exile. And that's what verse 6 talks about. The fact that they are going to come in, the Assyrians will come and absolutely demolish their cities. It's over. This was a curse that God told them would happen in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It was a curse that they agreed to bear if they disobeyed the covenant and they did it willingly. They did it in a way that they did not care what the consequences were, and now they are here. And so he, words, he uses serious words like consume and devour. The idea of devour in verse 6 is the idea of ending something, completing it, finishing it. It's supposed to be an entire end of the nation. And in verse 7, it says that eventually when that time happens, that's going to be when the people realize they've done something wrong, and they're going to call it to God. But you know what? They're not calling out to God because they love God. They're only calling out to God because they don't want to undergo this punishment. They just don't want the consequences. That is the only thing they will want from God. And so God says he's not going to hear them because he warned them. And now that warning is becoming a reality. So it seems shocking getting into something like that when God just talked about being a father. But he's reminding you of the punishment of sin. In the book of Jude, the second last book of the Bible, Jude asks a very interesting question to his audience. And Jude asks this, do you know what the reason was that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is in your Bible? If you remember that story, it's very simple. A very, very wicked couple of cities sinned terribly against God. And so God completely destroyed them with fire. That is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude asks his audience, do you know why Sodom and Gomorrah is in your Bible? And he tells them in verse 7, because it serves as an example of the punishment of eternal fire. 
The reason Sodom and Gomorrah is in your Bible is because it's a picture of hell. It's a picture of the eternal punishment of fire that every single sinner deserves. And Hosea is reminding his people of that terrible, terrible picture of the destruction of two cities being a foreshadowing of where all sinners will go one day if they do not repent and if they are not saved. And the interesting thing is this, that when God remembers that, he responds with one of the most emotional exclamations in the entire Bible, in the entire Bible. And it's verse eight. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's Israel. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me and my compassions grow warm and tender. Now it seems like God starts asking questions. It seems like he's asking questions about the legitimacy of his own judgment. Because of those question marks, it seems like he's saying, oh no, should I do it? Should I not do it? And that's not exactly the point because God always knows his punishment is just. He is a good God and only judges fairly. But the point that he's saying is this. He remembers Sodom and Gomorrah too. That's what the reference to Adma and Zeboim are. Those are two cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. God remembers that picture too. And when he thinks about his children being destroyed that way, it wrecks him. It is painful for him. He does not enjoy thinking about it. He says, oh, my children, what a terrible thing it would be if I destroyed you completely. What a terrible thing it is to consider the destruction of my children. And he sums that up by saying his compassions recoil within me. And I want you to get a picture of how dramatic that statement is. So let me step away and tell you a story to illustrate what that means. In 1 Kings chapter 3, David, King David, his son Solomon is on the throne. And in the throne room one day, two women come to him. They're both prostitutes. And within three days of each other, they've both had baby boys. And one night they put both the baby boys down to go to bed. And when they wake up the next morning, one of those baby boys has died. As a result, both of these women have come to Solomon. One woman says, that baby that's still alive, that's my baby. But the other woman says, no, that's my baby. And she's, her baby died and she stole my baby. And there are no witnesses present, the text says. And so this dilemma is laid before Solomon of trying to determine whose baby, whose woman is the right baby. And so Solomon has a very interesting response to this. He says, let me do the math. Two women, one baby. I got an idea. Bring me a sword. I'll chop the baby in half, give half a baby to each person. That's the solution that Solomon has for them. And as the sword is brought out and given to Solomon, this is what 1 Kings 3 verse 26 says. The woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give her, 
Give the other woman the living child. By no means put him to death. And Solomon, seeing how only the true mother could care so much for the protection of her child, that she would even give her child away, knew that that must be the right mother. So he gave the child to that mother. And the description of the woman being overwhelmed emotionally by the thought of her child being chopped in half. The description of the woman's heart yearning for her son is the exact same Hebrew wording used here. That is the kind of emotion God has when he considers the destruction of his children. Listen, we've seen We have seen that God desires to save his people, but the thing we haven't seen is the emotional display that God has even over punishment. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, and he is overwhelmed with the destruction of his people. Do you have a God like that? Do you think that God is just some being that you were sent on this earth to blindly obey? Does your obedience come from a sense of not wanting destruction or does it come from a place where when you see God, you see how much he loves you and how much he is overwhelmed with love for you? How he wants to warn you and save you and lead you with compassion and most importantly, like this text is talking about, show grace to you. And so he says, I'm not going to execute my burning anger and I will not again destroy Ephraim. That is, I'm not going to destroy Israel. And it seems like God is changing his mind. I was going to do it, now I'm not. That's not what the text is saying. What it is saying is, I should completely obliterate you. I should destroy you from the face of the earth and allow you to receive your eternal punishment in hell. But that's not going to happen. The fact is, my people transgressed my covenant. So I am going to allow Assyria to come in and take my people away, but I will still be with them and I will not abandon them. And as we're going to see, spoiler alert, third point, he's going to bring them back to their land and he's going to provide a way in which they will not be eternally destroyed, but rather they will be temporally judged. That is the difference that God is making. And the reason he says he can do that is this, verse 9. The reason I can do this is because I'm God and not man. I'm God and not man. He says, I am the Holy One in your midst. Do you understand how weird that statement is? The Holy One in your midst? If God is holy and with you, that doesn't make sense. Because if God is holy, that means he's separated from sin. So what he's saying is, I'm the one separate from sin in the midst of you sinners. How can God be separate from sin and with sinners? And God's explanation is, I'm God. And I do as I please. And I please to provide a way in which I will uphold my holiness and my justice, but also be with my people. That is the love that I have for my people. So the question before us is very simple. What do I do with that? What do I do with that love? Well, the first thing that you need to do is you need to understand that no other love should be your standard for love except for this love. 
the greatest love you can imagine should not be the love of your parents for you, though it is a wonderful thing. It should not be the respect and admiration of your friends, which is also a wonderful thing. Lord willing, one day, many of you, if not most of you, will be married. But the standard of love can also not be your spouse. It has to be God. Because no other love compares to the love that God would have for you and the lengths that he would go to stop your eternal punishment and instead to grant you a relationship in which he is with you. And the other reason you really need to know this is because the Bible doesn't lie to us that life gets hard. It gets very hard. And we need to know that God is going to provide a way in which our relationship with him as sinners will be restored. We need to know that. And that's the third point. The third way, after the Father's care for us and the Father's grace for us, the third way that the Father shows his love for us is through restoration. Restoration. Cleaning up broken pieces. Making right what is wrong. It's very easily summed up in the last two verses here, in verses 10 and 11. By the way, in the Hebrew, verse 12 is actually part of chapter 12. That's why we're not ending with chapter 12 or with uh, verse 12. So in verse 10 and 11 are the verses that talk about the restoration God is going to have. In verse 10, he's going to roar like a lion, which means he's going to demonstrate his ferocity and power over everything. That when he roars, whatever he wills to happen is going to happen. All his people in all creation will obey. And their obedience will be shown in verse 10 and verse 11, saying his people coming back to him trembling, shaking. The point is that they're fearful. And you might think that's a bad thing. Like they feel like guilty people that are shuffling their feet going back to God. But the point is the fear of the Lord is part of God being a father. Listen to Psalm 103 verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So part of God's compassion is his demand to be feared, but it's not a sense of fear in which you are hiding from him or terrified of him. Rather, it's a true recognition of his power and might over you and amaze at the fact that he might be with you. And so you come to him understanding the kind of power that he could have to completely annihilate us, but instead he welcomes us. And that should shake you with a sense of awe and wonder. That's the kind of trembling they're talking about. So God's saying his people are finally going to be his people. They're going to finally be obedient. That's a really helpful thing for us trying to understand, well, What does that have to do with me? God's going to bring the Israelites back. What does that have to do with me? Well, the point is that the people he's bringing to himself aren't just the Israelites. They are guilty sinners. If you know the book of Hosea, you know that there's a different picture that explains that to us. It's actually how Hosea opens. God wants every time that Hosea, the man, the prophet, every time he goes into the public square, Every time he preaches to the people, he wants every single person to look at Hosea and understand his love for sinners. And this is how he's going to do it. He tells Hosea, the prophet, the real person, go and make a wife out of a prostitute. 
go to a prostitute and make her your wife. And Hosea, who knows his life is for the Lord, does that. And so his wife, a woman named Gomer, you can read about this in Hosea chapter 1 and Hosea chapter 3. His wife, Gomer, goes and does what a prostitute does, which Hosea knew she would do, and God knew she would do. She goes and she receives money from illicit activity. And as such, she sells herself to another man. And so Hosea wakes up one morning and sees Gomer is gone. And so he immediately leaves the house. He takes the money that he has and he goes out into the marketplace and he looks around to try and find his wife. And finally he sees her in the crowd and she's with another man. And Hosea approaches that man and he says, I want to buy back my wife. And he says, well, she comes at a price. And so Hosea being a poor man empties his pockets and he has 15 shekels, which is not as much as it would cost to buy her back, but he also has some food. He has a lethic of barley, it says, in chapter 3. And somehow they come to an arrangement, and he buys his wife back. And he brings her home, and he restores her to his home. And she dwells in their home as his wife again. The point is that every time Hosea preaches this message... They see a man who loved a wife even though she betrayed him. And God says, that is going to be a picture of my love for Israel, my love for guilty sinners. That even though my people went after and lusted after and sinned over other gods, I'm still going to buy them back and I'm still going to bring them home. Whatever the cost is, I'm going to pay it. And I'm going to bring them in as my people. That's why God saying that he's both a husband and a father is not strange because God is taking every single analogy that ex could explain to us adequately how great his love is for us. He's putting them all on the table and saying, that's how I love you. So how is it that God is going to buy back sinners and bring us home? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 2, Christ talks about this. He says to the people that he's speaking to on the night that he is going to be killed, he's going to be captured, tried, sentenced guilty, though he is completely innocent, and he's going to die on the cross. And as he speaks to his disciples, the men who have walked with him the three years, the men who he loves, he tells them this. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. He tells them that he's leaving. He tells them that he will see them again. He tells them he's leaving because he's preparing a place for them. And what he means is that he is going to the cross to pay the price to buy back an adulterous people and as a consequence, bring them home. And that happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That the promise that Hosea was making was not to a guilty and adulterous people that were only Israelites, but that would be to Gentiles as well, every single one of us. And that his son would willingly die. That the father wanted us so much as children that he paid the ultimate price, the sacrifice of his only one beloved son. And that he would be punished instead of you. That was the cost that he had to pay 
to buy you back. And he didn't do it because we're special. He didn't do it because we deserved that. He did it just because he loved us. And because he is God, that is the way in which a holy God can have sinners be with him. If he punishes the sinner's sin and provides for them the perfect righteousness of his son, then the Holy One can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And he did that only because he loves you. And he told Hosea to tell that to a nation that was at its most guilty, at its most rebellious. And he did that to illustrate the point that no matter how much you think you've sinned, no matter how much you think you are far off, no matter how much you think that you couldn't be in this relationship, you can. Because the cost was already paid for you and it's done. So I want you guys to know that even in the Minor Prophets, even in a book like Hosea, the gospel is pouring out of every single page. And the whole point is that even in the face of betrayal, even in the face of the worst sin, the most hurtful sin, the most painful sin, that could be done against a person. We did that against God. And he still sent his son to die for us, to buy us back and to bring us home. That should move us. That should motivate us. It should not make us less obedient. It should make us more obedient. And it should make us thankful that no matter what happens here, whether in the coming weeks or months, or in the rest of the years of your life, you can have encouragement knowing there is a home prepared for you because the cost has already been paid. And that is the message of God as a father in the book of Hosea. So let's pray. Father, so often we are just not affected by your word. Reading your word seems like a chore. Praying to you feels like a chore. Doing the right thing just feels like a chore, but could we pray that if we hear about how great your love is for us and how deep and wide it is that you would offer guilty sinners the offer of salvation, but not only salvation, but of adoption, that we would be freed from sin and tied to you as a child who will never be abandoned never left, always being faithful to you, no matter what we do, that we would be encouraged to remain faithfully to you for our whole lives. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not feel the sting of their sin or does not understand the depth of your love for them, I pray you would open their eyes to this message. They would understand that having a relationship with you is the greatest thing in the entire world and nothing compares to it. There's nothing so good as knowing that sinners can be ransomed, can be bought back, and be brought home. Though we are sinners, you have offered that to us through faith in you, belief in your Son, Christ, and repentance, turning from our sins. Let that motivate us. Let us love that. Let us have that as our encouragement as we try to be faithful to you because you've promised to sustain us all the way till the end. Thank you, Lord, and bless us in our discussions in small groups and with the rest of our weekend and weeks. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.